I think the most important thing is that people's reactions to your art are true. They happen. Um, how you choose to change and adjust the art based on those. Um, Bill Hader had a really great quote. When somebody tells you that something isn't working in your script, they're right. But then when they tell you how to fix that part, they're wrong. Hey, yeah. welcome. Thanks for listening. This should be the last of the Friday special episodes for a while. It is a lot more work doing two episodes a week, so I think I will throttle back. I have a few episodes already in the can that I'm really looking forward to sharing those. Eric Kennedy, Kayla E., Carrie Nord. I mean, the list is pretty long. So stay tuned. Today's guest is Brennan Wagner. Brennan was on the podcast, boy, two, maybe two and a half years ago. And he, uh, he's done so much since then. Uh, that was the sort of mid-pandemic. He's living in New York City. Since then, has moved back to Portland, and he is living the life, I guess you would say. We recorded this two and a half weeks ago, and it was following another live YouTube show supporting the Rogue's Kingdom comic book that Brennan is coloring. We had talked just three days before, so we were, <laughs> it almost felt like we were like, wait, where are we? What are we doing? And um, we refer back to that. And this was done in a time when the, the campaign was at around $9,000, but now they have funded but they have a slew of killer stretch goals. So if you haven't already pledged to the Rogue's Kingdom campaign, go check it out. James Robinson has written an amazing story. I was fortunate to get to read issue number one. And, you know, he's back, you know, and he's doing this amazing fantasy and it's different. And Jeff Johnson has pulled all the stops out in his art for this. It is mind-boggling the amount of work he's put into this. And Brennan just ties it together with this beautiful bow. So um, go check it out. I can't wait for my copy. I'm such a shill. Anyway, um, we talk about his current project, St. John with Dan Schade, and the master edition of Grendel Devil by the Deed with his pop, Matt Wagner. And, you know, listen, Matt's amazing. And Grendel is one of my favorite books of all time. So anytime like some new stuff is coming out, it's always great to check it out. And uh, comes out, I think, this month from Dark Horse. Brendan talks about another project. It's a, like a six page comic that he wrote, drew, lettered, colored, like it's all him, soup to nuts. I've seen it. It's great. I don't know, go check it out. He talks about it in the episode and I think he'll be posting stuff about it soon enough on his Instagram or wherever uh, you can find him. So yeah, this is me with Brendan Wagner. Look at you with all the, uh, the rose paraphernalia. Beautiful. Yeah, man. I'm all about those roses. You're all about the flowers. I like it. Here, here's an official St. John t-shirt. I love it. Got a little St. John logo down here. I thought you were going to show me like your underpants going official St. John underoos. That would be great. I, <laughs> I would wear those every day of my life. Good luck. 
What do you think the what do you think the uh, the buy in rate for the uh, current comic book fiend Kickstarter crazed audience if you could bring Underoos back for you know adults? <laughs> I think they'd have to be pretty spectacular. He could be Iron Man again. Yeah. Oh. Awesome. <laughs> See, <laughs> I would I would be the Phantom. I'd want like all purple. <laughs> just, just which we could you already do. You could already do that. You don't need to actually need official underoos for that. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, long time to see. Yeah, what was this? A couple of days ago. That just we had a couple of days thing. ago. A little, a little fuzzy. Um, the campaign's doing great. Well, I guess it will let a framework for anybody who's not paying attention to what's going on. Um, uh, you are coloring the Rogue's Kingdom uh, series for James Robinson and Jeff Johnson. So that's kind of a cool, cool undertaking. Um, yeah, and we're only, what, like three days in, I think, and they're... 9000 bucks. Oh, dude, we're almost there. I, I know. And I, I, I think I said to, I don't know who I was talking to, I mean, if, if they make a push, man, they could double that number. Like they could, they could totally double the number. So, you know, it's funny. Um, the number is almost arbitrary these days, right? With the, for with sure. The, like my dad's Kickstarter that he has uh, set to go on the 24th. Yeah. That, that Kickstarter, um, th- they just put an arbitrary goal, uh-huh. financial goal on it of, Six hundred and sixty-six dollars. Nice, because it's because <laughs> it's a Dracula campaign. Sure, and like I mean, they'll hit that within the first fucking five minutes. But like, yeah. then then you know whatever you get, because I'm sure in their heads they have some actual number they're trying to hit. Well, they ha- um, I'm sure they have a recoup number that they need they they need to hit, and then from it, you know, then beyond. Yeah. Again, I, I mentioned it during the the um, drink and draw for the rogues kingdom thing their their kickstarter it's a it's a combo with with dark horse this is like the new new model like the new model yeah. is is the kickstarter but i think is it similar to what um oming is does because like oming like puts out his fantasy series and then it goes to the stores with the kick with the image icon oh it, then then yes that's what they're doing they're, they're kickstarting probably um it's i mean it's sort of like what we're doing with with rogues kingdom uh there i um and i don't want to speak prematurely but there's i I believe there's the intentionality that rogues kingdom gets picked up by a different publisher i would think i I, i'm pretty sure james and jeff told me they're they're talking to image so yeah um, but i don't want to i don't want (laughs) to step on anyone's toes yeah i don't know exactly what's going on there i I just color the book. <laughs> there you go. Play dumb. That's the way I always do it. Yeah. I just, yeah. I, I'm just a pretty face here. I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. That's always been my motto. Um, that's cool. But let's get into the really important stuff. Um, how was your fishing season? Oh. Um, <laughs> oh, no. No, no. It, you know, b- because of all the comic book projects, not enough time to fish. Yeah. This this summer and this fall, which are pretty prime time fishing conditions for Oregon, um, which, which is where I live, Oregon, of course, St. John, Portland, everything yeah. I do is in Oregon. Um, the the fishing season and, and and you know the fishing season was terrible this year, especially for salmon. 
Um, I don't know if you've been reading about this, but Oregon is now facing what they're calling like um, like a catastrophe, like fishing season, where suddenly the numbers are so low for salmon fishing, uh, commercial salmon fishing, which affects our fishing too when we're just on the river. Um, the numbers are so low this year that that the the mayor, the governor, they just asked for like uh, you know aid. From wow. the, the from the the wildlife fishing game of America, sort of thing. Again, I'm I'm paraphrasing the hell out of this, but it's like uh, the numbers were so low for salmon this year that it's officially a disaster. And um, and apparently over the last three years, so the the salmon fishing has been so low. The numbers. Um, I mean, last season I went out steelheading and I caught one steelhead for for like. 50 trips out on the river oh my gosh okay well so that's pretty that's really thin or you suck one or the other well steelhead fishing is like fishing for a unicorn yeah it's typical that you'll get one in oregon you'll get one every like couple trips you know i mean it's it's a uh, it's the it's not the kind of fishing where you go out expecting even to get a fish you're, yeah. you're excited to get one it, it, again it's like a unicorn sure um, they fight so hard i mean it took me 20 30 minutes to land the thing yeah, well, they're they're a tough, they're a tough, they're a tough one. Yeah, especially on the fly. I, I do all fly fishing, so sure, right? Harpoon. Let's see how they do with the harpoon. That's like what they used to use, man. <laughs> the Oregon natives they used to use hooks that looked like big harpoons. These mm-hmm. giant, giant things on the end of uh, on the end of lines, on the end of like nets. Um, it's pretty fascinating how they used to catch salmon around here. I guess there's a big difference between when you, you fish for pleasure and you fish for, I don't want to die. Oh yeah. Yeah. Survival. I, I'm actually all catch and release. So I don't even keep fish anymore. Right. So like it, for you, it's purely just, you know, an entertainment process, you know, to get with nature and kind of do the thing. And it's, you know, it's fun. I'm the same way. I'm, I'm catch and release. I've always been that way. I don't, I don't really care about the fish as much as like the act activity of doing the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, hell, you can go to the store and get like the same quality of fish caught like that day or the day before from sure. your local, you know, wherever. And I mean, especially in Oregon here, we have like, I, I can go, I can drive five minutes to a seafood market that's across the bridge right over here. It's so close to where I live. And they have fresh steelhead caught in the river that's like steelhead. They, they get in the market there are, are humongous, way bigger than the steelhead that I caught last year. It was like, I want to say it was like 50, 50 plus inches. I mean, it was, it was humongous. It was just giant fucking thing. Um, and, and so thick around you, like, it looks like a tuna steak when you, when you, uh, right. when you fillet it up, you know, I, I remember seeing those, uh, where those, those, um, bass tournaments. And then you hear about the people who like cheat by like shoving stuff down, like the bass, bass's gullet for the weigh in just to like, I've not heard of that. That's, that's fucked up. <laughs> totally screwed up. That's fucked up. Anything to get the trophy, I say, you know? There, there's always people cheating the system. I just watched a video about uh, camel competitions in, like, in the middle. Like, camel, uh, trophy camel raising is a huge thing over there. Yeah. And, and uh, the, the, the grand prize for the, like, uh, you know, best in show camel competition is close to, like, $60 million. Oh, wow. Can you believe that? Like, it's crazy. It's so crazy. I mean, and I, you, we, you run into this all the time, but it's so interesting how 
self-selecting we are as a country. And I'm sure every country is this way, but like everything's like why, like we think everything that we do is the way that everyone else should do it or does it around the world. And yeah, of course they have camel competitions because that's what they have. They don't have horses or, you know, they don't go steelhead fishing, you know, because they don't have that, but they have other things. And those other things are just as exciting and entertaining. The reason I saw the article is because there was a record number of camels that got expelled from the competition because of uh, hormone injections, um, uh, muscle stretching. Like <laughs> apparently, the process to get your camel into one of these things is bananas. They get X-rayed, they get their blood tested, they wow. they are inspected by a professional. Like just crazy, man. Crazy. I love it. I love it. Makes me want to watch Lawrence of Arabia again. It's like my favorite movie. Oh, it's a great movie. It makes me so happy. Um, yeah, no, there was, I, I guess, um, uh, Zach Davidson was saying something similar. I, I read today that he was talking that, you know, as, as sort of like, as like, we're so cool about our comic industry, like it's the minor leagues compared to like the manga industry, like in Japan, like how they're paid and treated. Like it's a very different world. And what, what does that mean? They're paid and treated well? I think they're tra- treated like it's better. Like it's a bigger business over there mm. per capita. Hey, it's, it's a bigger business here. So that makes sense. Yeah. Right. And I, it, but it makes you like kind of think like I gotta, I, I, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, if from your sort of information, like I think we have, like we've created comic properties that are probably the biggest in the world as far as comic book properties, like that are known, like everybody knows who Superman is, right? Like, everybody knows who he is yeah and yet and yet dcu and mcu are actually when you look at like franchise um uh monetary value they're mm-hmm. actually pretty low on the totem pole compared to like ninja turtles are above them sure um, the mo- the most successful franchise of all time currently is pokemon right not a comic but you know yes a comic was it a comic first it, I want to say it was a comic before it was even a TV show. I don't. I don't want to say either because I don't know. Yeah, I remember seeing one back in the day. It's it's old, but I mean, it was a, it was a video game first. That was the the first thing was a video game. Okay, so I mean, I'm talking you know straight up comic book. I mean, but yeah, I mean, listen, the video game is a completely different monster. It's the biggest thing out there. There's nothing bigger right now in entertainment than video games and Taylor Swift. I think those are the two biggest things in entertainment, right? <laughs> Yeah, but we're talking we're talking fiction. Yeah. I want to say MCU is like 14 billion, 15 billion. Pokemon is like 75 billion. Like Crazy. it's so much higher than MCU and DCU. And Ninja Turtles is sitting at like 40, 50 billion. So like, you know, there it's crazy like which franchises it's so hard to guess, right? What's going to do the best? I you know, it's funny you I, I don't play video games and, but I remember I also, when, I also don't play video games. Yeah. When I first saw Pokemon and I, I'm like, Oh, you know what? Like it would be really cool if they made like a gaming like sphere that you had, you could have, and then you could give half to your friend and you had the other half and you could play 
whatever characters, you know, like whatever the Pokemon battle characters were like to me, that made it, that was a no brainer. Like, you know, Alex and Brendan could play each other, their favorite Pokemon thingamajigs against each other. But it looked like that little sphere that they have in the cartoon. I was like, that seems like a thing, but I mean, you you mean the Pokeball? That's yeah, sure. The Pokeball. Yeah. talking about a Pokeball. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up. I grew up, you know, uh, during the the in the nineties when the Pokemon craze like first hit. I oh, was um, about fifth grade, so end of elementary school, going into middle school. That whole like kind of era was uh, like I, that's all I did with my friends. We just we would hit the we would hit the recess schoolyard, whip out our Game Boys, connect them, battle each other. That was nice. like that's what we did you know and then we'd go we'd rush home to eat eat a bunch of snacks and watch dragon ball z like so much so much anime and what's interesting is i actually don't watch or indulge in any anime now unless it's like the like the new miyazaki film attracts me but like yeah for the most part yeah i i i made that transition ultimately mostly from the influence of my father whose studio i'm in right now oh okay that's what you're seeing all this grendel spirit shit around me <laughs> yeah, I just thought you were just, uh, you know, keeping up the family, you know, honor there by putting all that stuff around. No, that's the, wait, that's one of his Eisners right yeah. there. There it is. There it is. Tickling. Um, so yeah, you know, uh, for me, it was like there, the anime was really influential because it taught me all these like shortcuts to storytelling. Mm-hmm. Anime, I think, is phenomenal for that, teaching you how to make shortcuts visually for storytelling. Yeah, especially action, action-based storytelling. And then ultimately, like the anime kind of like bled over into American cartooning and Mm -hmm. American animation. I mean, some of the most influential stuff on me now is like Batman animated series or like any of the animated superhero stuff from the 90s. The X-Men show, the Spider-Man show, the Justice League show, um, Superman show. Man, I love I love that stuff so much. The Fleischer cartoons, which which Pop had me raised on, were uh, were really big for me the yeah a number of those episodes like are in art they live in my head permanently <laughs> like fine art of cartoons like if you look yeah. at those like yeah. any of the fleischer animation it feels like you're looking at yeah. fine art and that like yeah. i don't know 16 seconds of windsor mckay animation like like yep. all that stuff is like feels like fine yeah. art now in retrospect like for how gorgeous like the effort was that they put into that. Um, that that's a good, that's a good uh, uh, relation there that you're, they bring up with the Windsor McKay animations from back in the day. They, they are very similar to those Fleischer ones. There's that fluidity there mm-hmm. and a hand drawn aspect and a textured sort of old, old school look to it. Uh, that that's really always been very attractive to me. Yeah, no, it, it's gorgeous stuff. Um, and it's, you know, cause it's kind of interesting you know, if you think about it, like when I think about like, having seen you, your coloring work and your, your illustration work. Like I look at that and I, you know, it's very much in that wealth of painterly sort of world. It's not coming from sort of flat cell animation kind of feel. It's very strong in that sort of like there's dimension to the color that you're putting in there, like the weight. Yeah. And, and for me, you know, I, I don't really get to draw that much or paint that much because I'm always coloring other people's work. Right. And now with St. John, I'm like, I'm writing and coloring. Mm-hmm. So it's very rare these days that I get to like draw and paint, but I'm getting to do it more often. If you'd like, I could, I could screen share and I could show you the piece that I started in the drink and draw for Jeff's, uh, for the Rogue Kingdom um, campaign. 
I, I I'm just wrapping it up now. So it's just, just at the end, I believe I started it during that. So I was, I was kind of laying in some flat tones. Yeah, we can share that. Uh, you can share that with me later. I, since now I'm completely audio, it doesn't matter anymore. But, you know, you could have you could have worn your Hawaiian and Hawaii Five O T shirt for all for the video. It's all audio. Oh, okay. Yeah, I yeah I uh, I I I like I like just to have a picture of of your of your voice in my mind. Um, <laughs> but the it's you know because I mean like you know you were kind of like inter- when we first talked you know, dude. And it's like over two years ago, like when we first chatted, which seems like a million years ago now, um, like you were like, I mean, it's so interesting how you color. Cause it's, it's kind of very different than a lot of other people I know who color, like you were really like approaching it in a painting fashion. Like you, you know, I mean, you, you have things flatted like everyone else does because you have to stay within the lines, so to speak. Um, but how you are directly affecting that layer versus you know doing something and then having some sort of effect applied to that to put over that layer does that make sense yeah yeah yeah. i i, I mean i i yeah I, I always talk about this um uh i i make a lot of marks i think yeah. mark making is one of the most indicative things about comic book art and about uh two-dimensional art is is the best art to me is art that keeps making marks keeps and and keeps making the right marks. So if you're an artist like Alex Toth or like my artist on on and co-writer and, and best friend on on St. John Dan Scotty, you're making minimal marks. Yep. You're making the right marks. And but it is all about making marks. And uh, so when I'm coloring, I'm thinking very much in that line. Um, I, I believe I sent you St. John to read, and and I hope your listeners are are checking out St. John, the book that is my uh, I, I creatively own St. John. So I, I'm quite invested. And St. John, um, I color very differently. I don't know if you notice, I color very differently than the way I color, color uh, for example, my father's art or Tim Sale's art or, or uh, Chris Mitten's art or Ben Stenbeck's art or, I mean, I've colored so many people over the years. And, um, it, you know, with, with a lot of them, I was experimenting with texture, with mark making these days I'm trying to go with, with someone like Dan, with someone who kind of is inspired by Darwin cook, by Bruce, Tim, mm-hmm. by those animated series I was talking about from the nineties with someone like that. I'm always trying to uh, like figure out how to pair my mark making with their mark making. Um, I think that in the color stage, you want your marks to sort of reflect the marks that are being made by the, the line artist. With someone like my father, there's some, there's texture there, even though there's also a clean line aspect. There's a lot of noise and texture in in the shadows, and so I'm always trying to figure out how to add just a little bit of texture into his work to make it kind of match the line art. With Dan, everything's very clean, round brush. So when I color Saint John, it's purely round brush, purely okay. like uh, flat. Um, I'm trying to figure out how minimal I can go, how how flat I can go. And I'm not very good at coloring comics completely flat because my, my OCD fucking ass is just always making marks, making marks. So I'm trying to, with St. John, I'm trying to figure out how to leave as many things flat as possible to match the art, mm-hmm. uh, the, the line art. Um, and, and as in general, as a colorist, you're, I think you're always trying to sort of match the energy of the line artists. You know, what are they laying down? Are they, are they are they a hatch artist? Are they laying down a ton of marks? Yeah. Um, are they the kind of artist who 
who is is very clean line and minimal and has a lot of white space. If there's a lot of white space, you have to think about your coloring differently than if they're like a Frank Miller type artist and they have a lot of black space. The the, the black heavy artists like uh, like you mentioned Oming earlier. Oming, I I think in my head I think of as a as a black heavy artist. Mm -hmm. He bots his blacks really well, and when he does that. You, you know, you can always see the areas of light because they're the areas that aren't inked. And right. so for me, I'm always trying to like spot that and, and figure out like, what is the best approach to this? Um, it's hard when you're taking on a lot of projects as a colorist because you'll take on this and that. Uh, I just did a thing with Kelly Jones, for example. Mm -hmm. Coloring Kelly is very different than coloring literally anybody. Because sure. Kelly is so, I mean, so you could like Kelly, Dan, and Jeff are very, very, three very different artists in yeah. terms of like how you would approach coloring them. And that's so, you know, it's so interesting you say that because I don't think I thought, I mean, like I do, you do the, you know, you know, <laughs> the comics, you know, uh, slot machine, like, you know, because you have a penciler, an inker, and a color. So you're three slots in your slot machine and you kind of like, you know, pull the lever and see who gets who, you know, that kind of approach. And you always, you know, coming from the penciling side of it, my mind goes, Oh, I always like to see who would be inking so-and-so drawing. But then I think about like in the coloring aspect now, very much opposed to, you know, coloring 30 years ago, the work that you do as a digital colorist now is so different than what it was done so long ago in, in the terms of, you know, the mark making. Because you didn't really get the opportunity to do as much mark making unless it was a prestige format where you could paint. Um, but the thought process, like for you to have to like approach these three different artists in completely different mindsets. Yeah, you pick, you picked a you picked a good trio of of variety there. Well, you picked them. You said yes. <laughs> but it's like it's, i'm an opportunist when it comes to work man sure, so I, I said yes because the paycheck was in front of me but for yeah. sure but it's it but it's super interesting because we don't like like i think we just think oh well somebody does the thing that they do and that's that but it's not so much it, it's it, sure you could totally do that but like i'll i love using music metaphors and i'll, and I'll cite my you know my all-time favorite guitarist being eddie van halen love eddie van halen broke the rules when it came to playing guitar but every time i hear him play songs with other people that's not the band van halen he sticks out like a sore thumb because he's doing his thing and not everyone around him is on board for the thing that he's doing and not saying they're against it it's just they don't know how to play along with that or how to make it fuse in and you go oh that's different so like if you were like i only color it this way you know and that's and you it would be this is the brennan effect you get on here but the problem is that wouldn't jive with every type of art black and white artwork that comes across your you know your whack'em so yes correct uh that that's it, a that's a good example to bring up yeah you know and you're talking about collaboration ultimately here you're talking about like art that that is not done in a in a vacuum that's not done solo right um, you know uh and, and comics are almost always a collaborative effort unless you're someone awesome like jeff smith uh yeah. you know uh, most people my dad included are are people that are doing uh collaborative efforts um you know, even on uh, the, the Grendel series that I'm coloring right now with him, it's it's a, it's a it's a new Prime series. Uh, we have it slated 
I actually, I, I, I won't say when it's later coming. It keeps getting pushed. Grendel keeps getting pushed, but it, it, it's a weird sometime in the future, near or far, we're not sure. Sometime in the future, in November, we have a Grendel book dropping that is just absolute aces. Any of your listeners that like Grendel, please, please go out to the stores in November and get. I, I want to say it comes out like early November, so so hit the stores late, like mid to late November. Um, and that is, uh, that is, uh, a, a redux of the Grendel devil by the deed story that popped in back in the day. Um, mm-hmm. we redid the whole, the whole book, uh, the original is only 30 something pages. This one sits at 120. um, entirely new art drawn and colored by me, uh, or drawn by pop colored by me. Uh, the writing done in that same style where it's, you know, uh, chunks of text. Every page is this gorgeous, like sprawling spread. It's none of it is typical panel storytelling. It's all very inventive and creative. Oh, cool. Uh, that book in November is one of the coolest things I've worked on in the last couple of years, frankly. Yeah. And it's been a long time coming. It hits in November here. But the, the, the next series we're doing too, the next Prime series, you know, he's writing and drawing that and I'm the only other collaborator, really, the colorist. I guess the letterer too, but we just kind of we just kind of trust the letterer most of the time these days. They, they, it's very rare that we adjust stuff. D- Dan and I will adjust stuff on St. John because we're like control freaks about St. John. <laughs> so like we'll, we'll ask for certain things here and there. Um, but for the most part, yeah, Grendel, Grendel lettering comes in and it's just banging usually every time. Um, for the most part, it's just him and me collaborating. So I'm just coloring stuff that he's already worked out. And in the case of coloring, you know, Grendel for him, I'm like very much his assistant is right. how I think of it. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to interject what I think the story is supposed to say at this moment or that moment. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to like, you know, uh, form this dialogue about what's happening. It's more like he tells me what's happening. Right. And I try to interpret that the best I can. And then when he has a corrective note, it's always the correct note because he's the creator, not me. <laughs> yeah, he's the composer. So, this is this is how this is how you play it. Yeah. And anytime I've ever argued the point, I was wrong. <laughs> I'll just say that. For for your colorist listeners out there check your ego at the door because uh-huh. like at coloring a comic book is so assistant work. It's so collaborative, you know, um, only with St. John where I am also the writer, uh, is it different? Otherwise, yeah. Like when you're coloring a comic book, you are, you're trying to help because the inks, you know, black and white, such a strong contrast, it, the strongest there is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like the story tells itself without you as a colorist. So like, what are you going to add? How are you going right. to make it better or, or palatable in the color stage? Um, and I think that's always a matter of focusing on what is most important per panel, what's most important per page, what's most important per book, just figuring out like, what are the narrative beats and where is the emphasis and the focus? Um, everything else is just background noise. Everything else is just, you know, um, Set dressing. Dressing, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because this, is, this isn't a film. It's delineation. Like, I mean, I remember when I came, when I got into the business, I did some coloring of my own work early on. 
And I always thought about it as a, as a delineation, like how do I clarify what I, what the artwork that I'm putting out is, is saying, like, where do I want the reader to be focusing on? And I, you said something really interesting and I guess it was sort of your mentor who kind of led you in that idea that, you know, every page should have one one panel that is like the focus panel. And then every panel should have one element within which is a focus element, right? Yeah. And I'll just, I'll just give him a shout out again. Like I do at every interview practically. That's Dave Stewart, who is, I, I think he's the best colorist in comic books. His his work inspires me so much when, when I'm in a rut, I'll just pick up a book that he's colored and I'll just start looking through it to understand. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. The, the focus is here. The focus is there. Color plays a role. Uh, contrast plays a role in drawing your eye to that thing. Um, you know, light, lighting, if you're trying to draw the focus to certain characters, hit them with a bunch of light, yeah. give them minimal shadow or vice versa. If the, if the background is bright, hit them with a bunch of shadow. So they, they, they pop, they, they always need to pop every, every point of focus needs to pop somehow. Um, and that, that's, that's always dependent on what subject matters in the panel. So like for any panel that has eyeballs, I always bring this up. Eyeballs. Eyeballs are the big one. Eyeballs and human faces. We, we look at faces more than anything else. Sure. That's why drawing, painting the human face has always been kind of the, the be all end all uh, or the human form, face form, anything like that, because we're, we're trained to look at human beings. We look at human beings more than anything else. And particularly we, we look at the eyeballs. So I'm always like thinking about how the eyeballs are, are your point of focus. Um, anytime a character is talking, it's that little glint in the eye. It's that little that little mm-hmm. white spot in the eye. That that's what does it. Because uh, otherwise, like, it, it, who's to say what somebody's going to focus on? Are they going to focus on the beard or the hairline or the structure of the nose? You can you can guarantee everyone is going to just their eyes are going to go right to the other eyeballs and they're going to go to faces, um, human form. Uh, if there's an object that's supposed to be in focus, uh, it should have a lot of detail. Uh, if it's a physical object, something that's inanimate, uh, because your eye always wants to go to the animated stuff, to the live stuff. So, you know, if you want to draw the eye to an inanimate object, it it better have a lot of contrast, a lot of detail. Um, it better be center, center stage, uh, right in the middle. Um, yeah, I, well said, I agree. Um, Speaking of pop, let's talk about your pop for a sec here. And I think about like, you know, you know, most everyone doesn't grow up with a, you know, somebody in the arts and follows them in the arts in that sense, because we usually kind of rebel and go the opposite direction um, or something to that effect. And did you have a period of rebellion or were you always sort of like, I really want to be in this because, you know, your dad fills some big shoes. And it's, you know, it's interesting to, you know, to see how, how you have, you know, sort of carved a space into the, into this industry. Um, did you like reluctantly say, okay, fine, I'll do this. Um, no, um, it's, I guess the answer is sort of nuanced, um, a little half and half. I, you know, growing up in pop culture, I think you'll see this in, 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 actors and movie stars too their kids kind of gravitate and are like into that as well um there is there's something about pop culture that is extremely attractive to a kid you know your imagination's running wild um we all we all long for that when we're reading material and watching material it's 
it's all it's all nostalgia based it's all trying to get back to when you were a kid and so for me i was extremely impressionable my -hmm. sister doesn't do any of this but of course she loves pop culture she loves watching tv and film and reading things like because it's really hard to just completely ignore how wonderful pop culture is when it when you're surrounded in it as a youth uh and i i always was i mean i used to be pulled out of school to go walk convention halls and help run my father's table um i remember a few san diego comic cons that were just unbelievably cool where where i got to be a part of like everything he was doing including all the con activities and post con activities like the dead dog party so i i've been going to these sort of um things my whole life and it was it was sort of inevitable that i would be involved in art form in some way or another i dabbled with other stuff in college i think that's really important when you're getting out of high school when you're leaving the nest for the first time you need to experiment with other art forms that you are not as stellar at most artists leave their high school and go to college and they're they feel kind of cool because they're suddenly i don't know top of their game you know riding this wave but it's really easy to just take courses that are um, within your wheelhouse. And it's, it's, I think it's really crucial to sort of drift outside of that a little bit and, and experiment with other stuff. For me, it was um, photography and sculpture. Oh, cool. So I loved doing sculpture because there was a real sense of like carving out this thing that I was doing already when I was sketching and drawing with pencil, trying to figure out anatomy. Um, mm-hmm. sculpture is crucial for anatomy. Anyone listening that's going to school or is about to go off to college and wants to draw, take sculpture classes, especially life sculpture. Yeah. The human form is everything in comic books. So you need to know your anatomy, even if you're going to cartoon it, even if you're going to simplify it, you need to know it. And, um, and photography was a big one for me. Um, I just like, I, I get kind of the zoomies when I sit in t- in my little studio space here, like I'm getting them right now. Like I get I get the zoomies where like after a few hours of work, I, I got to go outside for a bit. That's why I fly fish. Uh, I play tennis and basketball. Uh, I like to go running. I, I lift weights. I just I have to like move my body at a certain point because um, there's something weird about i think creativity when you're just in that chair for too long absorbed sure. in this micro universe you have to go experience the tangible real universe and photography was that for me so i did i did a lot of photojournalism uh in college um that was mostly like my local my my newspaper uh my college newspaper would ask me to like go do you know an event and i would take my nikon i would uh usually <laughs> take a tab of acid and I would just go like kind of uh, have this very, um, you know, tangible down to earth experience. Mm-hmm. And I always took that back home and would end up drawing that stuff. In college, I did a lot of marker drawings based on my photography. So I was always like drawing from life and taking what I was seeing around and like then drawing that and like learning anatomy and learning structure and form and color and contrast all that through, through the lens of like a real reality. So I think it's crucial to get outside. And again, like um, just experiment with another form of, of, um, of art making. I mean, I, I, in college I dabbled with fucking everything, man. Yeah, sure. 
took a theater class and a film class and I, like I tried tried all of it. Uh, ultimately, I, I again I really liked photography and sculpture, so I did a ton of that. But there was a point in my life where, you know, I realized that the the ability and it was honestly conventions and I'll I'll throw out Steve Siegel, great writer. Um, Steve Siegel, who has partnered with my dad on a number of projects, including Sam and Mystery Theater. Steve, who officiated my wedding. Uh, Steve uh, one day looked at, at my portfolios and he said, you know, you have an eye for aesthetics and composition, uh, 2D structure. Um, your photos look great. Your drawings look great. But anyone can take a photo. And very few people these days, especially these days, can draw. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a there's almost a magic power in it. Your ability to translate through your your eyeball into pen ink into on the paper with with mark making that is um, it's rare and it's it's something not to be lost uh, it, and it sets you apart. And it was him telling me that and sort of getting that impression about walking around cons. You know, you walk around cons these days. It's all merchandise. It's all it, there's very few artists. Yeah. or comic books anymore at comic con these things are cosplay con and and pop culture con and franchise con now mm-hmm. and there's there's a real talent there to be able to i mean i i can see it when i sit at a con and just start remarking issues for people when i just start head sketching for people they it's like a magic trick You're, they're blown away by the ability of somebody to simplify and break down these forms and be able to represent them very quickly with with a pen Um, so ultimately, yeah, I had to, I had to kind of gravitate back towards comics and just decide, like, you know, finally, this is, this is what I want to do. But I think there was some rejection going on initially, um, me wanting to maybe try something less, um, like dungeon dwellery. Um, again, (laughs) the problem that I find with comic books, like comic book making is there's a lot of like dungeon, dungeon dwelling, um. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know. I mean, it, I was I was super fortunate for a, a big chunk of my career that I had a great apartment in Manhattan and I had this my drawing table was right on the north window facing uptown. It was perfect. Like so I, I, I wasn't in a hole. I had beautiful light. I had a beautiful view, which made life good. Um, but to that point, I rarely left my apartment because I was stuck there doing all this work for, you know, ungodly hours of the day. I lived in New York for three and a half years and I had the exact same experience. First of all, I felt like I could never afford walking out my front door. But you sort of lived <laughs> in my old neighborhood, kind of just south of my old neighborhood. I love, I was on 50th street and uh, off of 10th Avenue between 9th and 10th. Oh shit. That, that's yeah. like a few blocks from where I was, man. Yeah. I was 42nd and, um, and yeah, like, 12th basically yeah i mean you're super close to new york comic-con oh uh, like literally two blocks away yeah, yeah. It, it, the con the con was really easy for my apartment in new york super there, easy, but, yeah but the rest of life was was very difficult because it was you know it, first of all the the price of just eating or living is insane mm-hmm. uh, but then also like you were saying you kind of you spend all your days up in this apartment and there's like you walk outside and the streets are like more apartment like it's just a bunch of like concrete and more humans and again i'm a i'm a big nature guy growing up in portland and oregon oregon is so um 
everyone who lives here has the same sort of weekend mentality. Got to get the fuck out of here. Right. Got to go out to the countryside. Got to go out to the mountain. Got to go to the beach. Got to go to the, the, the gorge. Got to do something in nature. There's a real uh, recharge that happens when you go do that. And I feel that anytime I walk out my front door, hell, when I go on a walk, we, we live where my folks live here. There's a, there's a forest behind us and it's a gorgeous little trail and, and I'll, I'll take it. There's a basketball hoop on the other side of it. So I'll, I'll take the trail and I'll bring a basketball with me. When I get to the other side, I'll shoot hoops for a bit and get nice and sweaty. And by the time I'm back in front of my computer, I am energized and I'm ready to like indulge in this pop culture craziness (laughs) again. So, you know, you were talking about like, you know, the, the taking the other classes and tr- trying to get out of your comfort zone, you know, in the, in the terms of your education aspect. And it's not as easy to do it when you're in the professional world because, you know, you have bills to pay and you have responsibilities, but like projects are an opportunity for you to say yes to something that if you are aware of it will make you uncomfortable. So like, I don't know how I would, you know, color this person's project or I ink or would not ink this person's thing or, a, or, you know, or a pencil or even saying like, huh, how would I, I, you know, this person is a really different kind of writer. I don't know how I would draw their stories. So right. do you are, is there a consciousness and you're like approach, like saying like, okay, how do I like, do you do that? Like, do you say like once a year, you're going to try to find a project, which is going to like challenge you in that respect where you have to kind of like, mm. Mm. um, uh, that's a good question, by the way. Um, <clears throat> I don't consciously do that because it happens so goddamn often. Okay. Those kind of challenging projects fall into your lap in comic books, every other project. Like there is there, the, the, the odds of you getting, virtually everything being aesthetically consistent throughout your whole life in comics, extremely rare. Um, and I would, I would advise anyone who's trying to get into coloring. What I do when I'm approaching a new, a new project, new artist, let's say, uh, let's say it's, let's use Chris Mitten. Okay. Christopher Mitten. He's a great, phenomenal artist. I've worked with him on Hellboy, uh, BPRD kind of stuff. Uh, I've worked with him on, on random little things here and there. Uh, he's a great artist. But he looks very different than a lot of other artists that I work with. He's very abstract. He's very kind of flow state. And um, when I first colored Chris, or when I color anybody's new project, and it's the first page I'm looking at, I always give myself a little more time on that page. Mm -hmm. Maybe double, triple, quadruple the amount of time you would normally need for a page of comics. Because it, it the first... The first scene, the first page of any new project, you should really spend kind of experimenting and like making marks and figuring out what works and what doesn't work. Don't be afraid to trash stuff and just restart or to kind of erase something you just worked on for like 30 minutes. Like um, the first page of the first scene is always going to be that, that part of the book that is you finding your footing. And I don't think regular readers won't really notice um, looking at mage my dad's book mage through image is a great example of like you know the first several issues are uh the writer artist pops finding his finding his um visual footing 
as far mm -hmm. as storytelling goes and mark making goes um they find it pretty quickly and and that's through repetition that's through applied effort that's through work yeah you know i come down we we come down every morning and just get to work like and and there is um there's a thing compelling you to go forward, which is like, if I slack on this, this is now a hobby. So like the, the aspect of like forcing yourself to work through lack of motivation, lack of inspiration, um, just forcing yourself to keep making marks. I know I say that term a lot, but I'll keep saying making marks. Like, don't be afraid to make marks. It's, it's he who hesitates that will fail in the arts and especially in comics. You need to just keep making marks and keep moving. Uh, otherwise, you you start to second guess. You start to take too much time. You start to get precious. That's a word that I hear a lot when describing poor comic art or poor efficiency in comics is like preciousness uh, is really sort of the downfall of efficient storytelling. Um, pick and choose your moments and, and attack them, you know, uh, with... with um, intent i was saying intent a lot during that that last podcast the drink and draw um intent is really important as a colorist as a as a line artist as a mark maker in in comics or in the arts field in the two-dimensional art field um because otherwise you're 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 starting to get into almost oil painting if you're not mm -hmm. if, if you're just kind of putzing along and getting fussy with it and making tons of marks that can lead to cool art but it's, it's not how comics are made. Comics are made with intent and efficient sort of ferocity, attacking the moments that matter. Yeah, because it, it's interesting because like there's a there's a term called deliberate practice. So it's like when you are when you're going off to do something and I'll, and I'll give you I'll give you a fishing metaphor for this one. Um, nice. So so for fly fishing, I used to do this as, as a kid with sports and I was when I was struggling with my my um, cast, I would switch to left-handed and I would cast left-handed to force myself to understand what the mechanics I needed to do to wow. make the cast actually effective. So Are you that, ambidextrous? I, I, I was as a kid and then you do the school thing and then they stop, they don't let you do both hands. They let you just do one. So I do, I do a lot of, I do a lot of junk with my left hand. I would not classify myself as ambidextrous, but I'm able to do things like take a fly fishing thing or like I said to Jeff, I used to do competitive shooting and I would switch hand to see what I need to do to try to figure out how I can. Now, the hard part about that one is dominant eye issues because oh. you, know, you have a dominant eye and non-dominant eye. It's very hard to adjust on that one. But I would say like when you're doing, because it's real tough because when you're doing comic books, the speed factor is so necessary that you don't have a lot of time to be really, you know, thoughtful and Zen about what you're actually doing in the terms of deliberate practice. So it, you, I, it's almost like when you said you have to pick your moments, like that's when you have to say, I'm going to slow down and I'm going to focus on this thing here to make this thing that special. That's that one panel, the one panel you speak of. Here's the one, that one panel. The I'm going to take the time. Panel, yeah. yeah. And it's like really, it's really an interesting thing because, you know, I know a lot of people, you know, do warm up drawings and cool down drawings and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's an opportunity for people to do the, the, you know, that type of deliberate practice. 
I was never very good at that. I, I, I liked it. I looked at creativity like a switch. I'm like, it's time to work. It's time to stop working. And I would do it. And I don't think that afforded me a great opportunity of growth. It just made me happier in the terms of my time of not working. Um, but like, do you, do you, I mean, is it, is it like what I just described using that one panel as you, that the focus panel as your deliberate practice, or is it something you think you could do or find different ways of having it? I, I find that, 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 uh, mental practice that I keep talking about being deliberate, being intent, it, it's something like I am always working on. Like yeah. I get, I, I feel like I get lazy. I think that all artists, this happens you're doing it for a couple hours, you start to like, forget your intentionality, you start to forget about these things that I'm talking sure. about, you kind of get into a flow state that produces some great art. But like, um, it's really those intentional moments when you're truly engaged, and you're focused on what what's important. That's why deadlines are pretty important in comics. And I think why they have promoted some pretty great an important period. Yeah, yeah, because they they've promoted some pretty great art throughout the ages, and in yeah. comic, just in terms of comics, they they allow a lot of artists to start to figure out what like how to strip down their mark making and their and their lines to to uh to an efficient minimalism that um, I think just makes makes the better art. I mean, when it comes to moving your eye through a page through these panels, there's a lot of information. Mm -hmm. going on and the artist is not always conscious of how little time the reader spends per page per panel and so it's always good to like kind of stop and keep checking yourself this is why i always take little breaks when i work like i i, I can't work for like more than two or three hours without having to get up and go like outside for at least right a minute walk or something because i i reach a point where like i feel like again i'm getting kind of lazy or distracted from my goal yeah. which is always to make like efficient mark making choices and color choices and um you know it's the second you kind of like and and i'm sure you you've had this too where like you you reach a point where you're just you've been making marks for like hours and then you're like oh wait i just spent way too long on this this one thing all right, dude, that's so, the, you know, I was talking with, with Jeff Johnson on this one and we were, so this is something like, you know, you were talking about the flow state and like, we all want, we all want to be in the flow state. Like that's the magic, the magic zone. Yeah. I call, I call it the like Jimi Hendrix, like, sure, right. Yeah. You're in the, you're in the Hendrix moment. Right. Yeah. But like the thing is, is that there's also what I call the grind state. Right. And you can, you can slip right past that flow state and into the grind state because the page ain't finished. And your mind is like, just got to keep going, just got to keep going, just got to keep going. And time will go by and you've made probably not the greatest amount of progress that you would have hoped for. And the results may not be up to what you want. And when what you're saying about taking that time, stretching your legs, doing the whatever you need to do to kind of, you know, recharge your brain, your, ener yeah. your energy level, whatever it is, recharge, yeah, reset, get yeah. back to it. And it doesn't take much time. I mean, you could do it in 15 minutes. You can, yeah. it, it doesn't take a big thing, but like, you know, I think we're naturally not gr the greatest people when it comes to time management, you know, comic book or just creative people in general. Humans. Yeah. 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 And, and I think it's this kind of weird thing, like, because like what I notice in the comic book world from my experience of being in there and then my fellow, you know, friends is that we're so 
our ego is so tied into the work that we're doing that we will sit there for 13, 13 hours grinding away on a page because it's got to be perfect. It's got to be whatever, whatever, whatever. And then you said like, we, you know, the reader just blasts right past all that work, yeah. you know, hunting through the story to get the, get to the end. And you spent, you know, way more time on something than you should have. And then that's yeah. that you should I'll, do a good I'll job. You, all it takes is one time of missing your deadline, having spent 13 hours on a page or whatever you just said, yep. that like will make you check yourself so hard where you're like, oh, this is not feasible. This mm-hmm. is, I cannot, not only can I not make a living doing this, but I like can't even make a hobby doing this. Right. Like that's, and, and again, that's why comics, I just keep coming back to like, you really have to pick and choose your moments. I'm trying more and more these days to leave areas as flat as possible in the color stage that don't require attention. Right, they don't uh, need it. They don't need it. I'm always trying to, when I'm looking at the whole page, I'm always looking at what looks the most awkward right now. Let's say I'm halfway done with a page. Okay. Let's say I've done half the amount of marks that I'll make by the time I'm done with the page. And there's just a big face in panel three or something that looks too flat, looks awkward. It needs dramatic lighting on it or something looks, looks flat as hell. Looks, looks like it needs more rendering. It does. That's what that means. It does. So like attack that moment and get it done. And then let your brain drift to the next thing that is standing out, standing out. Exactly. What is the What is the next what's thing? It asking, what's positive? it asking for? Right? Like, what is yeah. this asking for? Yeah. Cause it's, yep. it's, a, it's the time it's, it's the delivery, you know, like, cause it's comic books. There's a schedule, you know, you were talking the, you know, the deadline. I mean, listen, we all love Arthur Adams, right? Art Adams is a great comic book artist. Everyone, everyone loves looking at Art Adams and you, you know, talk about Mark making that dude, makes marks, you know, and they're, they're very cool. Very few people do what he does. And if they do it, they do it because he did it. Like, that's just kind of how it goes. But if you're an editor and they're like, Hey, here's your option. You got art as an opportunity for your penciler, or you got this guy who nails his deadlines every single month. It's going to be a no brainer for the editor and the publisher. It's a no brainer. And, and I'm not knocking Arthur because I love his stuff. But it's it's this thing where it's a business and they got to get the damn thing out. And it's not a matter of it because like, who are we drawing it for? Are we drawing it for ourselves? Are we drawing it for our peers? Are we drawing it for the product? Like that's like the answer is yes to all of them. Right. Of course. Right. The answer is like yes to all of them. So how can you as a storyteller, especially a visual storyteller in comics, how can you uh, appease all of those things. How can you appease right. yourself first and foremost? How can you appease the reader, the publisher, your editor, your your cohorts, your peers? Um, there's there's a, there's a balance. You know, I, all of life is a balancing act. But being a freelance comic book artist writer, definitely a big balancing act. Having to figure out, you know, time. Like you said, time management is so crucial. Thir- thirteen hours. You you referenced that you said thirteen hours on a page. When you said that, my head went. Cool. I would, I would, I would just already be like working at Walmart. Like I, right. there's no way I could possibly not only pay my bills, but just like exist in this highly competitive market. If, mm-hmm. if I were doing that minimal of page put out, I mean, you just, uh, I'll, um, 
I'll, I'll reference my my fucking hero again who taught me most most of what I know about coloring. Dave Stewart one t- once told me, and this was like 10 years ago, so maybe maybe he's upped it from here, but he told me to keep pace with the amount of work he's got, he has to do at least at least 5 pages a day. Crazy. Which is crazy to me too. I I I can't do that. Right. I've done that on a deadline push, but that's for like an all-nighter sort of thing. The most pages I've ever done in a day was 8, okay, coloring. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was intense. It it involved yeah. drugs in a late night. Like it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> like an everyday all day routine sort of thing where I oh, get no. up walk off at five. Um No, those are phone calls. You get a phone call and then you're doing that kind of stuff. Like somebody is giving you a very sad phone call by saying, Hey, we've got a problem. You know, the schedules change or whatever. And then you, you know, and you're at the end of the rope. You know what I mean? Like there's nobody Uh, behind you. Poor colorists, yes. Poor poor colorists are about as end of the rope as it gets because a letterer, and I don't want to knock black and white. You do it off the pencils. Yes, a letterer can do it off the pencils and literally like do you know, 10 pages a day, no problem. Um, a colorist does about as much work as a line artist, sometimes more, depending on the page, depending on what's demanded of them. Mm-hmm. And it it can take so long to the point, and, and the recognition and the pay is always less too. So yeah, you really, as a colorist, you really have to figure out what is going to make your life not just a living hell. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's super, it's super tough in that, in that respect. I was thinking something popped in my head earlier about the, um, the deadline thing. And I think my, my, you know, my, what popped in my head was Sagrada de Familia, which is the, uh, cathedral in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's been, they've been building it for 135 years. So like, there's no deadline. They're still building it. They'll probably be still building it after we're gone. And then I think about like Notre, you know, Notre Dame burns down a few years ago. That that motherfucker is going to be up and running probably within ten years. Like they'll have that thing rebuilt, and it's going to be great. Like they're not. It's not going to look like, huh? Like you're going to walk in there, go, wow, you know. But like, there's a deadline. There is a straight up deadline. Yeah, I think about uh, another good example is. Um, um, if you've ever been to Ground Zero at New York, yeah, they, they put up that memorial so fast, right? That big, like that big square pit. They put up that thing so fast, and it's gorgeous. It is, and, and like, I don't think they could have made a better memorial for that area. It's like a perfect. It's a perfect thing, and yeah, and it happened like like you're saying it happened fucking rapido because it it was, it was government. I was there, you know, when it happened and I, you know, so I lived in Manhattan during that whole period. And so there was this hands off period, like nobody touched that area down there. It was right. It was, you know, nobody goes here. Nobody has anything to do. I mean, they were cleaning it all up is really what they were up to. Right. Right. And they, I, you know, there was real, no sort of overt decision what was happening, but once that trigger was pulled, when they said, here's what we're doing, it was like in no time yeah, now, like, like practically overnight. Like it's, it felt, it, it it felt like so it. Fast. Yeah. <laughs> now I'll tell you my, idea, my idea, I know that it is not nearly as a, um, deep and meaningful as the idea of what they put it there, which is great. And if you haven't seen it, please go see it. Cause it really will kind of 
open your heart up. But it's, it's epic, man. Oh, it, is, it is. It, it, it kind of pulls at the heartstrings. Oh, it, it, it takes your heartstrings and drags them down into that pit. I mean, it is yeah. absolutely. But yeah. my idea was to, because this is the time when they were deciding what to do uh, with the Yankees and Yankee Stadium. And I said, well, they should open up Yankee Stadium on that ground and put home plate as the South tower, like right from the home plate corner, that's where you stand on home plate. And I'm like, there's your American, there's your American response, you know, to, to such a terrible event. Um, so I, I, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> that is great. You, you, you know why they wouldn't do that though, because oh, yeah. it's, um, it's not uh, somber enough. No, it is. It is celebratory, which is yeah. not, not what they were going for. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I guess while we're sort of in the deepity deeps here, like how do you seek inspiration? I mean, I know that you, you, you like going outdoors, you like exercising, you love fly fishing, like, and those are great things, but are there other areas that you try to seek inspiration? Uh, All over the place, obviously anything fiction based. I'm a fiction hound. So when it comes to uh, storytelling, I don't usually gravitate towards nonfiction I like some documentary stuff. I like true crime stuff. Um, I listened to the last podcast on the left. Obviously, I just just did some work with them, and I have some upcoming work with them as well. A very cool Sid and Nancy story based on the Sex Pistols uh, and the last days of Sid and Nancy with my father drawing. That's awesome. Uh, that would be a very cool project. But uh, for the most part, I'm a fiction guy. So uh, fiction is where I draw most inspiration and where I'm always going to when I'm not working or when I am working, mm-hmm. uh, I'm an audible hound. So cool. I do a lot of audiobooks. Um, uh, just within the last several months, several books. I mean, I, 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 I read at least, at least a couple books a month, uh, via audiobook. Um, these days it's a lot of horror. Um, I also like sci-fi a lot. So like, I've read almost every single Dune book, even the shitty ones. Um, <laughs> all right, they're I, good. They're all good. I, I love sci-fi. I love I love getting like I love escapism. Escapism is a big source of inspiration for me. I think most people go towards fiction and storytelling in general because they want to escape from mm-hmm. what's from the from the monotony and the boredom of their life, or or perhaps perhaps the opposite, perhaps the 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 hectic chaos of their life. Um, whatever the the case, it's always escapism. It's always the chance to get away from your own experience and put yourself in the shoes of someone else. Yeah. Uh, and th- this is why I also, I never, never take people's advice when they give me like self-help book things, like how to, how to live your life more efficiently, that kind of stuff. Um, because for me, I get all of those examples and all of those lessons from fiction, mm-hmm. uh, morals, the themes, the lessons that we find in uh, the uh, the journey of characters, the consequences they face. Um, these are all things that reflect life. Uh, any writer is doing this to sort of represent their own reality and and comment on their own reality. So it's really easy for me to escape into fiction, but also feel the connection to the writer, to the to the universe. So again, a lot of audible um, th- these days, it's been a lot of, uh, horror stuff. I, I, I could recommend some books that, that I think are just aces that I've read lately. Yeah, horror, horror novel. A, give me some, give me some recs. Oh, okay. Well, the book I'm reading right now is fucking awesome book. Um, uh, Stephen Graham Jones, uh, he's, he's phenomenal horror writer. Um, 
Uh, and the book I'm reading right now is called uh, The Only Good Indians. Okay. And it is such a cool book and premise about four Native American men who commit an atrocity on a herd of elk that are sacred. And in the aftermath, uh, a strange entity starts to stalk and torment these men and their families over the years. And it's it's a very cool statement on culturalism, on tradition, on like westernization, on um, America. Like it's such an American novel, steeped in horror, steeped in creepiness. Oh, it's so good. Oh, cool. Um, uh, the one I read before that is called. Um, Tender is the flesh, which um, which is about uh, a near future sci-fi apocalyptic sort of future where all animals are poisonous to eat for humans. So humans start to harvest humans for meat. Cool. Um, and that one is that's one of the darkest things I've ever read in my whole life. It it, may, it takes the road and makes it look like a like a Winnie the Pooh book. Like it's so <laughs> it's so unbelievably dark. Just read another great book called Boy Parts, Eliza Clark, a uh, British author. It's her, it's her debut novel and it's phenomenal. It's like a, like a, through the lens of a young, attractive female version of American Psycho. Okay. Um, that too, really great. Um, so I, yeah, a lot of Audible. I also watch a lot of TV while I work. Um, <laughs> music, I can only ever listen to like an album or two before I'm just like, all right, time to turn on some narrative. Like I need some fiction. I need some characters. Interesting. Okay. Um, I'll do podcasts. I mostly listen to the last podcast on the left. I, I just love their humor and storytelling. So I'll, I'll listen to their, and that's kind of where I get my nonfiction, my true crime stuff, my real world stuff. But um, I do a lot of sitcoms. <laughs> okay. I do a lot of sitcoms while I work. Um, I'm always watching like Modern Family, Goldberg's. Mm-hmm. Superstore, office, that kind of stuff. I, I love workplace sitcoms. I love, uh, th- there's a real like casual cadence that happens when that is on in the background. Yeah. It kind of makes you productive no matter what you're doing, whether you're making art or cooking or working out or anything. It's like, there's there's something about a sitcom on in the background that is um, that is conducive to doing something else other than just focusing on it. Because you don't have to pay attention specifically. Like they're telling you what's happening as they're doing it. I mean, it's like, it's like a super friends episode. You like, you don't have to focus on it. I I, I say too, they're they're a lot like a radio show from back in the day. Sure. Like um, they, almost all of the information is, is auditory. auditory. Um, So it's really easy for me to do that. I'll rewatch shows I've already seen while I'm working. I'm about to do that with like the first season of our flag means death. So I can watch the the new season of our flag means death and actually pay attention to it. So I'll like, I'll like rewatch whole seasons of stuff before I watch a new season. That just kind of keeps my day going while I'm working. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and at night I will usually watch, yeah, like a drama of some kind. I'm watching fall of house of usher right now. I'm watching warrior on HBO warrior. For anyone who's not watching Warrior, Warrior is the best show you're not watching. It is wow, absolutely incredible. HBO, it's like Deadwood with a bunch of fighting. It's based on the writings of Bruce Lee. Incredible, incredible show. Oh, awesome. Uh, so I, I, I kind of draw in, inspiration from everywhere fictitious. And you didn't hear me mention any comic books there. I do not get to read very many comic books these days. Every yeah. now and then I'll get the chance to like sit down and actually bang out a whole graphic novel in a sitting. And that feels great and kind of like recharges my, my juices. But 
uh, I think a lot of comic book artists and writers and stuff will tell you this, which is at the end of the day, you know, we've been working, we've been working in panels all day. Yeah. We've been working between the gutters all day. And so we kind of want something a little different. Um, all, all of it, all storytelling helps to inform and inspire comic books. There, there's, there's almost no form of fictitious storytelling that doesn't help uh, inform our art form. No, I, I totally agree. And, and I, it was the same with me. I think, I mean, I was an avid reader. And then I, the minute I started working, you know, for Marvel or DC, I just stopped reading them because I didn't have the time. I w- didn't have the same interest. I was focused on different things about the art form. So it, I kind of, I mean, I would pick up things by my friends or people or creators that I really dug, you know, if I knew somebody was making something, I would, I'd make sure to grab it, but it wasn't, a, it, it stopped being about that. Yeah. And I mean, it's fi- finding, listen, finding that thing that, you know, you know, and it's interesting and it's, it kind of ties in nicely to St. John because it's, this is, you know, early effort for you as a writer in the, in the realm of comics. So, I mean, you're taking, now you're taking inspiration and you're making a thing from the inspiration in the terms of a narrative. Yeah. With St. John, it's, it's highly personal. I mean, I, I grew up in, and I, if, if your listeners could see, I'm covered in Portland merch. I, I love Portland. Portland is a big part of me. And I, I, I've lived in several different places. Like I said, I lived in New York for about three years and I, Portland's just a place I keep coming back to because it's just so easy to be yourself here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a way of life here that um, is it's conducive to being a freelancer. Um, again, the nature recharge is really nice in Oregon. You drive an hour in any direction outside Portland, and you have just awesome environment. Yeah. Beach, desert, mountain, swamp, like everything is found in, in Oregon. Um, and, uh, and Portland's got a real sort of tight knit neighborly community. Um, I know that it has a bad rep these days cause the, the homeless issue going on and the, um, what the streets look like in downtown right now. But, you know, as someone who lives here, that's sort of a demonization of the outside world. Like the, the best kept secret is that Portland is actually still way better than all your other major cities, still less crime than Seattle, still less murder than wherever, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's still like still nothing compared to those places. So I, I really love, I really love Portland and, and getting to ground a hero in this city, getting to like explore like the areas of this city that, that are highly recognizable and iconic and include them uh, and also include the sort of like community values and like um, ethics that make this this place tick, that make it run. Mm-hmm. Um, explore some of the stuff that that people find so weird and daunting about Portland, and that conversely we love about Portland. Those same things that people don't like that alienate them from this place. Us locals love about this place. Um, so getting to getting to explore that and kind of like give a voice to that. And um, I, I saw one, one review that, that it was, it was pretty loving of our stuff said, said it's almost like a leaflet for, for Portland. Uh, like <laughs> Sponsored Portland. by the Portland council for city growth. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're hoping, we're hoping that St. John and these issues and stuff and the, and the ultimate graphic novel, the graphic novel will collect the first four issues um, with some bonus material at the back. Um, 
we're hoping that, you know, it becomes kind of a, I don't know, a local, a local staple of a book. Uh, it'll be sold in all Portland gear stores. Portland gear is getting a new store in the airport right next to the travel Oregon store. So it's all just the, the made in Oregon store. Mm-hmm. So it's all, it's all like keeping it all like very within the, the family, um, localized, uh, localized stories, localized people, um, localized icons, symbols, ideas, again, ethics, um, values. Um, and, and John is a very altruistic kind of hero. He's, he's, he's definitely not our nuanced character. In fact, the story is from the perspective of an outsider, Mm -hmm. a journalist from New York, uh, who is visiting, uh, to, to sort of cover the, the oddness of this guy in this town, in this city, what's going on. Uh, and she slowly kind of starts to fall in love with the whole idea of it all. Um, and you know, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of me. That's kind of anyone who's, who's slowly fallen in love with Portland. I grew up on the outskirts of Portland, uh, a town called West Lynn. It's about 30 minutes South of Portland driving time, 20, 20 to 30. And so for me, it was always like, we always drove, drove into the town. Uh, me and my friends come the weekend or come, you know, after hours, we were driving into the city because we wanted to be a part of it. We wanted to be a part of what was going on there. Um, and the, the, the art scene going on there, there's some really, really wonderful events that happen in, in downtown Portland. The blues fest in the summer is just a phenomenal event. It, 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 uh, caps, uh, it's like a five day thing, four or five day thing, I think. And it caps off with a huge firework display for the 4th of July in downtown, right on the water. You know, you're watching blues music on this grassy hill. That's the the waterfront area, bridges everywhere and tons of people and food and good vibes. And then it gets dark and they, they light off fireworks. It's just, it's, it's a great place. Portland's a great place. It sounds place. horrible, Brandon. Why, what do you, this sounds terrible. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so I mean, I mean, I think if I could sum up the the hook, the hook is that you know the cynical New Yorker comes into into this looking for the angle, like what's the angle, and yeah. finds that there there is no angle that it's a that it's a continual you know circle, and like this character is just a part of this continuum, and I think that's kind of an it was an interesting way to start off a story. Um, that, that framework was borrowed from most a lot of books that my, my dad has written. Uh, I mentioned Sandman mystery theater earlier with, with Teddy, uh, with, uh, Steve Siegel. That's a, that's a good example of, of, uh, of a character who, um, the main, the main character is actually the, the love interest, uh, who is it's narrated by her. And it's all about her peeking in on this guy's world when you do this with a vigilante like this, and John's not really a vigilante, he never really fights anyone yeah. like fight crime necessarily. Uh, we keep describing it as an environmental disaster book more than anything, like an adventure environmental disaster thing. He's usually helping out because of climate change. Right. Uh, and, but this, this framework, this narrative framework, um, pop has done it on most of his shadow books too, narrated by Margot Lane. So instead of, you know, being narrated by the shadow, who's a mysterious figure, if you have it narrated by the love interest who's starting to peek in on and understand his lifestyle, you get to slowly reveal these things. You can hold cards close to your chest. When, when your main superhero is narrating the story, 
they'll just tell you anything that's going on. You know, I'm limited in this way. I can't solve this. I can solve that. I blah, blah, blah. This, this is my power. This isn't my power. But when, when you have an outsider peeking in on it, trying to understand it, you can, you can drag it out longer. Mm-hmm. You can also give that character that, that character suddenly the main, the, the hero becomes your, um, your static rock. They go through less change mm-hmm. than your narrator. And, um, and the narrator is infected by, uh, or affected by the, sure. the events and the, the actions of the hero. Yeah. Um, I keep saying, uh, in, in our story, her name is Tori Slate, the, the, the journalist from, from New York. And I keep calling her, she's the Nick Carraway to mm. our Gatsby. Right. Um, yeah. You know, we know St. John. We know this hero, altruistic, do-gooder, Boy Scout. We don't know quite as well this chip-on-her-shoulder journalist. She's kind of like Lois Lane, but like without a home base, as solid mm-hmm. as New York. She's trying to figure out her life. Uh, things are starting to shift for her. And that's, that was really fun. That, 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 uh, idea was one of the first things that made Dan and I go, that's, that's how to make this interesting. That's how to make this more than just product placement. That's how to make this something that actually has weight, um, and meaning and value and real, real substance and ethos and pathos and, and, and all, all the stuff you want baked into a good, good comic story. Yeah, no, I mean, it's good. And I mean, I think it's very different point of view. And I think one of the points that you were calling about, like the point of view way of telling the story is that if you make the, the protagonist, the narrator, well, everybody becomes a supporting character. Yes. In in this model, you sort of have two protagonists, you know, we have the, we have the marquee player, you know, in in the ball cap, in the mask, who were all kind of, you know, okay, who is this character? What is this character doing? But then we have this other protagonist who is in here and we need to know what they, who they are and what they're doing as well. I mean, like it's, it's because we're far less interested in the supporting characters because they're away from the action when the protagonist, like he shows up, you know what I mean? We're with her and then he shows up and so we, we have to bond with her. So I think it's an interesting model to kind of like to approach for a story. So bravo. Yeah. And and it's like you said, you know, when, when the hero is the protagonist, when the the main character is the strongest, most interesting guy in the room, everyone else is far less interesting. Um, I, one thing that Dan and I talk a lot about these days is that the, the very, the very human element that was inherent in comics has been kind of lost these days. You know, uh, Robin gets killed by the Joker. He's then a villain. Batman's battling his old ward. That's a villain. And then a villain and a villain and a villain. When is the last time Batman actually saved like a real person? Like, yeah. a, like when is the last time that Superman was involved in just saving someone that like was going to jump off a roof? There's a, there's a great uh, version of that in uh, all-star Superman. Uh, yeah, Superman. sure. Um, but but y- you know what I'm talking about here where like the, the very human element is lost because you have it starts to become Greek myth you have you have epic superpowered figures that are only involved in the theater of their of their intertangled you know actions and everyone else falls to the wayside mm-hmm. and that's just not that, I, I don't find that very relatable um, I've never found that very relatable you know when you get into some continuity heavy, superhero fiction it it starts to lose its grounding in reality and as a result 
it loses its relatability to us humans who are yeah. in reality. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about in the coloring aspect is that it become like they become set dressing, you know, and what you, yeah. you know, like the, the, the key is how do you make this all contextual? And I think, you know, I mean, this is probably the nature of things in general is that every, you know, as time passes, we just keep turning the dials up. So a little more color saturation, a little, little, little brighter, a little louder, a little, whatever more. And to the point where we're at the, you get to the point where you go, Oh, well, I'm afraid of having this be a simple story of Superman saving a person from a car accident or whatever, really pedestrian sort of event happening, not for that individual, of course, because that's life and death for them, but it's not saving the world. It's not stopping Lex Luthor or whatever the thing is. And I think it's kind of an interesting thing that like, you know, whenever, every so often we get these stories where they pull back, you know, the writer has the opportunity to sort of pull back, shift the camera a bit and give us a slightly skewed point of view that we're from what we're used to the readers typically respond in like, oh my God, this is amazing because they didn't know that they would love to have this particular piece of sushi. Like they just been so overly saturated with tuna. Yeah. Or or (laughs) hamburgers, you know, that they they had no idea that, that they were actually secretly missing this, this other thing. Um, Yeah. That the new the new show My Adventures with Superman comes to mind. That's a good example of like shows that like deal with very you know human problems. Um, you have this this super being, but he mm-hmm. is he's a fulcrum for actual human drama and consequence. Consequences is a word that like you don't feel as much in modern myth and comics because it feels like everyone is immune to not only death but immune to consequence. No right. longer like when Ben, Ben, um, Uncle Ben dies, it doesn't right. mean as much as it used to. Um, so, so I'm always looking for for stuff like that that has that human element. I think a great show that does that quite well is um, Avatar: The Last Airbender. If you if okay. you've ever seen that, um, that that show has a really great grasp on how to include little episodic, very down to earth human moments while always being conscious of this growing epic myth and this story that eventually is like Lord of the Rings by the end. But for the first plotting 20 episodes or so, it's it's Aang and his group arriving at a random town and solving that town's problems. So you get to meet all these like very real people and the lives they live and the struggles they experience. And you you relate to those people. You don't relate. <laughs> Superman's not that relatable. He's a fucking alien. He's a superpowered alien. He's right. the guy that's supposed to come solve all the the relatable issues that well, the real the, people are facing. He's the ex machina. You know what I mean? Yes. He's the power yes. of God. And that's, yes. you know, and it's an interesting, you know, it, it, which I, mean, I think lots of conversations of these end up boiling down to Superman, you know, or Superman and Batman. And you, yeah, you, yeah, you I'm know, using them because they're, they're, because, uh, the big brushes it's a big brush to paint and we all know as we said earlier everybody knows who superman is um well how was the experience for writing for you i mean what like for you like did you just like go i love this or this is fucking hard or like what what, what's the verdict it it is definitely hard especially if you don't practice as much as i do and that's that's why i listen to a lot of audible uh these days is because i love um writing I, i i think if you're trying to write comic books you have to read prose novels oh yeah if you're not reading prose and you're trying to write comics 
you are not doing your homework and you're going to fail. You, you need that vocabulary and you need that, um, that level of expertise that comes with, with real prose novels. Um, but, uh, but writing St. John has been really fun about, about mm, month or two before that, I actually got to write a, a short story. Um, I think I might post this today actually for like Halloween season. I got to write a short story for the last podcast on the left guys who I said, I love so much. Um, that's a, a werewolf story, um, Ooh. all about, uh, uh, government testing on, on people. Um, it, it's like MK ultra, mm-hmm. uh, it's all about the government testing on people and it triggers the dormant genes of a, of a werewolf in one of them. And, and there's a big slaughter and it was a lot of fun. That was the first project I got to write, draw, paint, letter, format, everything. I did the whole thing. It's only six pages long, but I got to do that as sort of a little, you know, uh, yeah, before, before doing St. John. So that really helped. But then St. John has been a very unique process of writing because Scotty and I, when we write St. John, um, one of us kind of comes up with the larger beats. I've done it for the most part on issue one and two, like the story beats. And then he and I will both kind of like come in for dialogue mm-hmm. and we, we do the dialogue in a, a face chat, like, like you and I are doing here where we, we literally go panel by panel and decide like, what's, you know, what's the best bit of dialogue. You act here. it out. We, we knock it out and yeah. it's, it's a, it's a matter of bouncing ideas back and forth. And that too, like coloring, we talked about earlier, like all collaborative efforts, you got to check that ego at the fucking door. If you don't, you will, uh, your project will suffer. You, you need to, you need to be willing to put an idea out there that you think is strong, that the response is not what you hoped for. And then you realize that it wasn't as strong. Um, I think the most important thing is that people's reactions to your art are true. They happen. Right. Um, how you choose to change and adjust the art based on those you know, um, Bill Hader had a really great quote that Dan and I love to refer to where it was, uh, like when somebody tells you that something isn't working in your script, they're right. Yeah. But then when they tell you how to fix that part, they're wrong. Yeah. They, their reaction to that being a weak part of the script is a true reaction. It's yep. it, they're the audience. If they didn't respond to that moment, that means you didn't connect. Mm-hmm. Um, but don't listen to them on how to fix it. That's on that's on you to figure out how to fix. But but always listen to what what uh, where the criticism lies. I think in your script, if if someone points to if you're asking for criticism, especially, uh, and they point to a scene, that scene needs correcting or sure. a line that need that line needs changing. Um, there's just something there's just something honest and genuine about somebody's reaction to your story that shouldn't be ignored. And that's just, that's just all ego. Yeah. yeah. So two, two things to think about in that r- regard. One, see how this settles with you in the terms of framing. It's not criticism that you're seeking. You're seeking feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Criticism frames it to the person that they need to say something. Feedback is, you know, the Geiger counter and one of the Geiger counter or some of the Geiger counter rules that I always seek when I send my, my prose out to my readers for their feedback, I want to know what works and doesn't work. What 
is clear and what is unclear and what they want more of and what they want less of. And those are kind of the frameworks that I, that I, that I would want to know. And I want to hear the negatives far more than I want to hear the positives because right. at least I can ignore the positives if time is of an issue, but right. positives are great because you get to say, Oh, okay, this is what they're responding to. And they want more of this kind of thing. So it's, maybe it's a way you describe something. Maybe it's an act action that a character takes, whatever that thing is. It's great to know. But when they say, I had no idea what was happening here. You want to make you want to make sure that you don't have that. Now, it's not across the board. Some people aren't attentive readers. Some people aren't, you know, whatever the thing is, everyone's attention slips at times. So you can't take it all of it as this is cut in stone, but you have to be you have to be attentive to all that feedback because that's where you're like you said you have to make these, these changes. You have to do them. And it like, once again, yeah, you're right. It's not their responsibility to come up with the answers for you. Write your own goddamn story. Um, right. so it's, it's a, it's a big thing to kind of, and I think it's great that you're taking it in there, but you, you, know, you also grew up in a house where creativity was what was, you know, paying for the food on the table at times. So you have to go like, well, somebody knows how to take some criticism or some feedback or whatever, or give it. And you're going to, you learn that it's an important thing. Yeah. And, and like you were saying, I, I, I agree. Big t- both are, are helpful, but affirmation is far less helpful than, than criticism, yeah. you know? Um, and, uh, and I would say more, more than even feedback, like what I'm looking for when I give someone an early script or an early sample of my work is I'm looking for a reaction. Yeah. What is what is their yeah. what is their gut reaction? What's sure. the first thing that they say or think if they look at something and they say, "Is he holding a shovel?" and you're right. like, "No, he's not holding a shovel." Then you you didn't convey the information correctly. Totally. Like, yeah. Something was lost in translation there. To you, you've been looking at it a long time. It looks mm-hmm. looks like a guy's holding a shovel, but maybe to them it doesn't. So you got to you got to think about that and change it up. Um Okay, there's a couple of things you said. A couple one thing the other day, which I I want to bring into here because it, it attributes to writing, and I think it also attributes to coloring in the respect of how it ha- fact you. And I think I don't know if it was based off of the uh, the uh, the night scene turned to a day scene uh, on on Jeff's cityscape, but the point is is that like time is a huge important thing. So when you were writing something let the let the pe- let the person who's going from that point of view know what time it is because if it, the penciler needs to know if you're the writer or if you're the artist I'm sorry the penciler needs to know from the writer what time it is and the colorist needs to know what time it is but if you are the writer and you're writing a story that takes place over time it's really good to put the time in there for yourself to understand yeah. how long it takes to get from a to b to c like these are really they're simple stupid things but when you don't do it, it doesn't really benefit you. But if you do do yeah. it, it's really, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a game changer. Yeah. When Scotty and I write St. John, we're extremely conscious every time we start a new scene, what time of day it is, because I think that time of day also lends itself to theme and motif. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a scene that's supposed to be dark and foreboding, it should be kind of at night or something like that or raining. Um, you know, you want, 
you want the environment and the lighting to reflect what's going on narratively. Yeah. Um, and the visuals are always meant to help push the narrative in, in a comic book. So it's important. I, I mentioned this earlier too, in the, in the last, uh, in the drink and draw there is like, read the script, read the damn script. I think a lot of colorists, a lot of sure. artists even will like kind of read the script or skim the script and think they got, it's like, read the script, read the script yeah. once through and then read the script again while you're working on it. Sure, it just seriously takes no time. I, so used to, I used to take notes. So I take the script and I would know like what it was. I would like, I would annotate, you know, on the page. I'm like, okay, this one needs to have X, Y, and Z have to put X, Y, and Z, here, you know, and that way it just kept me sort of honest as a, as a storyteller, like what, what has to happen here. And that's the advantage, that's the advantage of coloring a book that you are also yes, uh, uh, right. Is I, I just know it instinctually. Right, I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. I mean, you, you, yeah. it's the cheat code, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing is like, you know, going back to that feedback early, you know, aspect when you're a writer sharing something, you know, cause let's have writer talk here with the colorist. No, I'm kidding. Um, find out from those people that you're handing this stuff off to ask them when they got in, engaged, like, cause you may think it's page one, but it could be page three for them. And that's like a great thing for you to know. Like maybe I need to get to page three sooner and then mm. I get to do more in other parts of the book. Like, how do you like, so because engagement is the, is the key to, especially for issue ones, you know, like you want your readers to go, I'm totally engaged with this character or whatever the, or the story is to what's happening. And that's a super important thing. So, you know, I'll pass it one off as a, as another, a little bit of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, with, with St. John, um, the first issue, we, we really wanted it to feel very episodic uh, yeah. because it had to be uh, almost like a series of vignettes around Portland to describe not only the two main characters and what they're going through, but to describe the environment. In, in St. John, Portland is almost a character in and of itself, um, sort of like how movies like Chinatown are all about like the the, the place as well like mm -hmm. uh, wanted the place to have uh, like value and substance and almost be a character um, something to be studied something to be understood and nuanced and so to show that in the first issue it had to be little vignettes the second issue which we're, we're wrapping up now here um, is uh, is is quite different the second issue is almost like a and, and we're doing this, this is a very seasonal book. So St. John issue one takes place in the fall, issue two, winter, okay. three, spring, four, summer. Okay. Um, the second issue is a bit of a snowpocalypse. Uh, a big, a big snowfall comes and hits Portland and kind of shuts everything down. If you've ever been in Portland in winter, you know that we're not really equipped for such things. And so when it does happen as infrequent as it, as it happens, it does occasionally happen. Um, I want to say two or three years ago, it happened really bad. And, and our house here in the Burbs lost power for about five days. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And like, I had to keep a fire going upstairs just to keep the house warm. One morning I woke up and the, the toilet was starting to freeze water. <laughs> like it was getting that cold in the house. A little crunchy. Yeah. And so our second issue is all about a deep freeze. And it's sort of one big journey, one big adventure. Like uh, I keep saying, it's kind of like Balto. The, if you ever right. seen Balto, the, the, the husky disney story it, it's like a it's like a journey through the harsh conditions of winter but it's one sustained sort of journey one sustained uh storyline 
um, as opposed to the first issue, which is very vignette. And it's like you're saying that first issue needs to, it needs to be that it needs to have a number of things to introduce you to all the subject matter going on, the vibes, themes, the motifs, um, characters. Um, that's cool, man. I like that. You're busy, dude. Um, and let's, let's also not forget one of the reasons we're here as well is, is the King, uh, rogues kingdom. And, um, so they're probably like, by the time this airs halfway through the campaign. So I'm going to predict that the campaign's funded by this point. That's just me, you know, extrapolating here. Um, and I guess, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, people can listen to other things or watch other things and hear you say it, but like, how exciting is it to work with, you know, on James's work, on James's writing, who's just one of the greats um, as a writer, and and get to work on Jeff's crazy drawing. His line work is nuts in this. Yeah, I've actually known James since I was a, a, a wee tyke as my dad's weird British friend. So you know, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's fun to work with James because. Um, Again, I've known him for so long, and Jeff, Jeff, I barely know at all, but I love working on his line work. I think that, um, and I don't really work on a lot of guys who look like Jeff. Their line work, uh, mm-hmm. he, he's got um, his stuff looks phenomenal, but uh, it's a little more detail heavy than I usually work on. Yeah, um, a little bit more hatchy, a little bit more um, dense uh, detail wise, and so uh, it, it's really fun to work on his stuff because I really get to kind of indulge in my rendering and my mm-hmm. fantasy um i i you know all these lessons i've been talking about for coloring i actually i don't have to think about them quite as much with jeff's work because i'm really trying to render these environments very um impressionistic uh very fantasy heavy uh i think i'm thinking about frazetta i'm thinking about nc wyeth i'm thinking about any of these uh turn of the century fantasy illustrators and painters that i love so much impressionists um, so working with, with Jeff is really cool because it's, it's very different than, than working with other people as a colorist. That's kind of part of the fun. Um, if only the pay and the recognition reflected the amount of fun, because the, the fun is that you get to, you get to work on, on a variety of stuff. It never really gets boring. Yeah. Uh, right now, for example, I'm working on four different, working on four different stories right now. And each one. Rogues. five, five different stories. And each one, um, is like vastly different than the other one, you know, aesthetics, um, drawing wise, two of the things I'm working on are my dad's. And even those are about as different as, as you could get. One is a Grendel story. One is a sex pistol story mm-hmm. that is like raunchy as hell. So many dicks, so many knives, so much depravity. Um, and, uh, very triple X, yeah. And, and so that's really fun to work on because I'm, I'm applying a completely different rendering style and palette to that as well. I'm, I'm going with almost like a, like a sepia grayscale for everything. Plus a, like an intensely hot yellow and pink that, okay, that cool. punctuates it like a, like a sex pistols album cover mm-hmm. uh, or like a, like a punk punk poster from, from that British new wave or British. Uh, you can only afford two colors, pick them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, there might be a moment where I add a third one here and there, maybe a, 
um, colors that immediately come to mind for that punk rock scene would be like a, like a intense teal, mm-hmm. um, uh, not very many blues. Like when you think about those album covers, there's not very many blues. It's usually hot colors. Yep. Um, hot colors that are sitting on top of muted colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of scratchy white. So one thing I'm doing on on that project is occasionally when I want a panel to pop, I'm actually going over the line art and adding a scratchy white border to certain okay. um, panels to make it look very punk rock. That's cool. And it, that's, a, that's a technique I've never done before, uh, something I discussed with my dad, and we just decided that would look cool here and there, so I'm doing it here and there. Um, so, yeah, it, it, the fun of coloring, I think, is, is the variety, the sheer variety of, of work, especially if you're like me and you, and you keep finding and working with new artists, which I somehow – I mean, not somehow. I, I, I do that because I've, gr- I've grown up in comics. I have a nice network uh, – with my father being who he is and also attending conventions literally my entire life. I have a nice network of people who, who know me and can refer to me. Um, you know, T- Tim sale was like a no brainer when I started coloring for him. Um, because you know, Dave Stewart colored for my dad. I took over for him. There was a similar aesthetic going on. I, I sampled something for Tim and he loved it. And then boom, I'm coloring everything Tim does, you know, so, right. um, or did RIP. And so, and I, and I got a few guys off of Tim. I did a, you know, a little, little thing, a Walt Simonson Superman piece one day randomly per recommended from Tim. All these things kind of come in recommended because people, colorists are sort of a a last minute, like we were saying earlier, a last rung on the ladder sort of position. Uh, And often you're called upon because you are someone who can get the job done faster than the line artist can. Yeah. Well, nature of the business i guess um yeah man it's i mean it's great it's great it's great you're so busy i mean it was funny because last we spoke it's kind of you were locked you were literally locked in your apartment because of the pandemic and um you know i I don't think you were as busy coloring a lot of people at the time you were you were sort of doing different stuff and you were doing some really great paintings on instagram of uh TV shows you were watching, you would do the like that Korean horror, like the that period Korean horror um, zombie Kingdom, show. Kingdom Kingdom is one of the best shows. It's great, but you do you're doing some great paintings yeah. from that stuff, and you know. But then you have subsequently gotten a lot busier, and uh, yeah, that, yeah, that was all that was all commission work actually. That was that whole period was commission work because <laughs> because my uh, I was working on two, I was coloring two different books at that point, and they both got put on pause when the pandemic hit. Right. And they were put on pause for like eight months or so. And as a result, I had like eight months of just sitting around doing nothing. Um, So I decided to open up my commission list and I had a number of people hit me up and uh, uh, I really got to like get down on my painting then, which was good because now I'm getting the opportunity to do variant covers. I'll be doing the variant painted covers for my dad's next Grendel series, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rogue's Kingdom. Are you doing a cover for Rogue's Kingdom or a piece for the? It's it's a variant cover for yeah. Rogue's Kingdom. Yep, yep. It's for uh, the twenty dollars backers of the of the Kickstarter. Um, uh, and and I've done a number of of painted covers for other other things. A couple of like uh, prose novels, actually. People hit me up for like covers for those. Sweet. Um, and and it's really 
it's been a nice uh, way for me to kind of make marks and experiment with with how I would want to do this stuff. Again, um, to any of your listeners who want to like read what a fully painted story of mine looks like, I'm going to be, I'll, I'll just post that today. I'm just going to post that today uh, midway through October here for the Halloween season. Um, that is a, a fully flushed out painted story by me. A good way to see like what my work looks like when I, when I fully paint comic books just by myself and, and write by myself. I can't wait to see it. I can't, I mean, dude, I love, I, I mean, I, I have messaged you plenty of times saying how cool it is when I see you do the, uh, the... Oh, before we go, I'm going to give you a confession. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll play the priest. Almost a year ago, I was working on a project and I had to send a, cl- I had to send an email to a client and one of the people in the project, this is, you know, big dozens of people, you know, so an email chain with, you know, probably like 14 people on it. And we have a Brenna we work with. So I type in B-R-E-N-N-A, but yours came up and I didn't see, didn't think just hit enter because I saw something fill in the thing off it goes. And about a week or so later, this email pops in the inbox saying, Please take me off of this email list. I I color comics. That was you. It was so bad. I'm like, oh, poor Brennan has been dealing with these stupid email requests from a client for the last however long it was before you finally broke. Oh, that's funny. I don't, I don't remember. It's just one of the one of the spam things. I just it was it was. I felt so bad. So I had I had to confess that I apologize. Um, it's just oh, that's a, funny. The keystroke error just had you sitting in the middle of email hell. So, yeah, my name's pretty rare. So, so are the Brennas. I've only ever met a couple of Brennas and Brennans in my life. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty rare. Yeah, no, you're you're a rarity, my friend. Well, keep being busy, my man. Um, it was a real. I mean, it was great to catch up here. I know that we got to chat a little on on Friday, but this is a this was nice to actually spend a little time. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, man. It, yeah, like you said, it was nice to kind of get into the uh, into the weeds of, of my work and, and what I do. Um, again, I'll post I'll post that story for you and your listeners here on my Facebook and my Instagram, um, and I'll, I'll I'll send you that. Uh, it's probably going to go live tomorrow. Honestly, the uh, the Rogues Kingdom cover that I'm working on right now. So. Right on. Well, the links to all your your social media stuff will be in the description, so they'll be able to find you, and uh, and then they'll be able to track that down um yeah man can't wait to see i really i can't i honestly i can't wait to see the uh this this story that you're you did all the work on i can't wait to see you and your pops stuff because hell i've been reading his stuff for a long time the horror story that i painted myself wrote myself is called the edgewood massacre cool and it's uh it it features in a beautiful edition of the last comic book on the left from the guys who put out the last podcast on the left. They do uh, a biannual or something like that book. Um, and it's inside of that um, printed at a beautiful, like oversized sort of thing on this nice, nice paper. Um, I was so happy to see how, how nicely it printed. Oh, cool, man. I can't, I really can't wait to check this stuff out. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to add to this before we, uh, Please pick up St. John, issue one, issue two coming soon. Please pick up uh, Grendel, uh, uh, Devil by the Deed, Master's Edition on in November. 
an absolutely gorgeous hardback in a felt slipcase with black gilded pages. Beautiful. Wow. Beautiful. I, I think it's the, the prettiest looking book I've ever worked on. And I, I want to say it's like my 15th full length graphic novel I've worked on. So wow. please, please go get that book. Um, and then I, again, I have cool stuff coming out after that rogues kingdom, the Kickstarter is live. Please go back our Kickstarter. Um, and then I have a, a cool Sid, Sid and Nancy sex pistol story coming out, uh, soon as well. So there you go. Crushing it, my friend, crushing it. Yeah, man. See you, buddy. Appreciate it, Alex.